Welcome to the Big Break Software Podcast. We'll be talking with software startup founders, software coaches, and consultants, and how they found their own software success. And now, let's get started with the show. Hi, everyone. This is Jordy Wardman here, host of the Big Break Software Podcast, where I talk to top leaders in the software field like Seth Godin, Andrew Warner of Mixergy, and many more. This is a show where we talk to proven founders about their 0 to 30,000 MRR journey and beyond. Today's episode is brought to you by OneStop.fm. We have 45 developers waiting to take your idea to fruition. If you want a reliable full-stack development team with top talent that costs half as much as in-house developers, and you know you can trust your SaaS or mobile app with us, we'll give you the first 30 days no risk, and we guarantee being on time and on budget, or we finish the project at no extra cost. Contact us at OneStop.fm. Let's talk about your SaaS MVP project today. Today on the Big Break Software Podcast, I have Rob Walling. Rob is an entrepreneur, investor, podcaster, author, and what I would consider the godfather of bootstrapping SaaS. Currently, Rob is investing through Tiny Seed, an accelerator built for bootstrappers. Today, we're going to talk to Rob about what he looks for in his investments, the current bootstrapping SaaS scene, and his entry into the European SaaS accelerator and investment market. How are you today, Rob? I'm doing great, especially after that intro. It's very complimentary. I appreciate that, sir. No, no. it's I've been following you for a while, actually. I actually read your book. You'll have to forgive me. I can't remember the title, but the one that was written a long time ago. Start small, one, stay I guess. small. Yeah, yep. exactly. I really enjoyed it. So Cool. And I, and I was following you back when you were doing Drip. So, yeah, podcasts, of course, as well. Startups for the rest of us, if, in case you didn't know. Yeah, so great. So, so, so why don't you tell us... Um, Maybe we can just get a quick intro of what you're doing right now. What what's getting you excited about what you're working on right now? Yeah, so I'm I'm doing three things, but they're kind of quick to run through. There's the podcast startups for the rest of us and that's yeah. been I would say a labor of love, but it's just not even labor. It's just fun. Like we're at 575 episodes. It's been going for 11 years and mm-hmm. every week we ship an episode talking about first it was just bootstrapping and bootstrapping software, and then it has evolved into be more about SaaS, you know, to your point. The second thing I work on is MicroConf, which is an online and in-person community for bootstrap founders around the world. And then Tiny Seed is the first startup accelerator that's focused on helping SaaS bootstrappers succeed. So that I kind of split my time between the latter two and the podcast is just a few hours a week. Okay, and, and so it sounds like probably Tiny Seed takes up most of your time, would you say, or or micro probably fifty fifty. They're almost fifty fifty. Yeah. yeah, it depends on the week. You know, we did four in person events in September and early October, and so MicroConf took up the lion's share of that month. And then we ran applications for t- the Tiny Seed batch, and then uh, did all the interviews, and then we're starting the batch this week. And so it, it's kind of a, a tick tock back and forth. Okay. And I, I should just mention too, I went to MicroConf in Europe and it was great. Thank you very much for hosting awesome. that. Yeah. Glad give, you came. Give you a shout on that too. So what's, MicroConf has been going around longer, I believe, than Tiny Seed. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. MicroConf started in 2011 and Tiny Seed started in 2018. 
Okay, and is do they now play into each other? Is sort of microconf is sort of like deal flow to get into the accelerator, or how? What would you consider? How do they work together? The relationship, yeah. I mean, in essence, you know, microconf is a standalone community and has been for ten years now. Um, it was mostly in person, and we evolved it to be include an online component called microconf connect, and now we do mastermind matching, and we added a bunch of stuff to it over the last couple of years. Tiny Seed, if you actually go to tinyseed.com, it says Tiny Seed, a microconf fund. Like the, okay. it is a venture fund that sprang out of the needs we saw in the microconf community. So they're, they're affiliate. I like to say they're like sister companies or hand in hand or whatever. But we also get people coming into Tiny Seed who have never heard of microconf. So they hear about us on Twitter. They listen to startups. The rest of us haven't gone to microconf. They are referred by a Tiny Seed founder. They read about us, you know, in the press because we get mentioned now and again. So I don't think of them, I don't think of it as deal flow. I just think of them as like these sister orgs that are both trying to accomplish the same goal, which is helping bootstrapped and mostly bootstrapped SaaS founders get there quicker. And MicroConf does it through a lot of education. And as you know, the community, Tiny mm -hmm. Seed does it in a different way. For those who do want to take funding, because not all bootstrappers do, there's, yeah. there's at least a bootstrapper friendly option through Tiny Seed. Okay, that makes sense. And so tell, tell me what's, give me this sort of rundown on how is Tiny Seed different than some of the other accelerators that are out there? Sure. Yeah, so Tiny Seed is a year long instead of three months because okay. SaaS takes forever. It is fully remote and has been the whole time. Now all accelerators have become remote due to COVID, but our big realization is that, you know, when you look at bootstrap founders around the world, SaaS or otherwise, they're spread all over the place. They're not concentrated in major cities like venture capital has been. So traditionally, if you want to get into Y Combinator, 500 startups, tech stars, you have to move to a city and relocate there for three months and go through this blitz that then at the end, there is a demo day where you're trying to now land a, a seed round. Tiny Seed is remote and again, has been since day one. And it is uh, 12 months. And we, the goal is not to get to a demo day and raise your next round. Mm -hmm. Some folks might want to raise a round, and that's fine. But our terms also allow people to just run a profitable company, right? An LLC or a C-Corp. And they can do it at any, any of the 50 states. So it's much more, um, I, I, you know, I like to say venture capital and the traditional, the traditional accelerators feed into venture capital in essence, right? We yeah. don't necessarily, some folks may decide, but a lot of them will not. And um, I like to say that, you know, venture capital is great funding for the 1% of companies that probably should raise venture and Tiny Seed is funding for the other 99% of folks who want to be more, uh, you know, thinking about bootstrapping. And potentially we allow folks to run it for the long term and pull profits out if that's how they want to do it. Or if they decide to sell, obviously, um, you know, we support that. And But is that the business model that is just sort of looking for an exit? You're looking, building this um this portfolio that you own say maybe six or seven percent in each of these companies and they grow and they and then they look to exit or do you is eventually is there some cash that you can um bring down as an investor in distributions what's like specifically what is the business model for Tiny so C? both of those work we own a pro rata share <clears throat> to your point we don't bet on unicorns, right? So we're not saying you have to get to a billion dollars in order for this to be a success. Because if you go the venture route, that is the narrative, right? Yeah. We say, hey, if you can you know, get to 5, 10, 15, 20 million in revenue, that's a, that's a life-changing outcome for you. And that is a life-changing outcome for us as well. Um, we, our terms are 
to your point, we own a, a portion of the company. Um, our terms are 10 to 12 percent mm-hmm. for 120,000 for the first founder, and then 60,000 for the second, 40,000 for the third. Uh, the reason our terms are different than you know, let's say Y Combinator, is because they do they do have the Dropboxes and the Airbnbs and the Facebooks, and Tiny Seed is unlikely to ever have those those grand slam home runs. And so our model is slight, you know, slightly different in terms of the terms. But yes, if a founder wants to run an LLC and pull distributions out for five, 10, 15 years, then we just um, participate in those pro rata. So if we own 10% of their company, uh, they can take a salary up to a quarter million dollars. That's our agreement. They, that's mm-hmm. the salary that's cap. cap. This yep. salary cap. Okay. Yep. And they can earn more. They can take out more than that, right? They, they t- can take so a salary up to a quarter you million. get yours as well. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So then if they pulled 100 grand out in dividends, they would keep 90. Tiny Seed would keep 10. Same thing yeah. if they later decide, you know, if they decide to sell at any point, that's, it, it's simple, right? Equity has been around for four or 500 years. We actually looked at, there, there are ways to do more complicated terms and we started going down those roads, but we didn't like how complex they got with all the if-then-else statements of payback and what happens here and there. And it was, it was just easier to do equity okay. or simpler, I should say. And how many investments have you got now um, through Tiny Seed since you started? Yeah, we're about to close our 59th investment in the next week or two. Okay, so so as the um, and and describe to me how you go through um, finding these. Like, what's the uh, investment um, due diligence that you go through? Are they all from the accelerator, or um, how do how do you how do you structure that? Yeah, so the accelerator and the fund go hand in hand. So to get into Tiny Seed, there's an application process, okay. and um, you know, so we get however many, several hundred, 500 or something applicants for a batch. Mm-hmm. And then we take, there's three people taking multiple passes through it, ranking and rating based on all the factors I'm sure we'll get into you know, here. And then we do interviews and then we uh, make offers and if folk, you know, give them a term sheet basically. And if folks accept, then they're in the, they're in the accelerator and we're gonna fund them because those two things go hand in hand. Okay. Okay, that, that makes, sense. makes sense. So, <clears throat> so if they're in, you're investing, and then they're part of your uh, tiny seeds portfolio. That's, that's correct. Yeah, okay. and they they receive the funding that I've talked about. But to be honest, a lot of the companies, most of the companies, don't actually need funding. What they want is the the mentorship, the advice, the guidance, the network. The you know, like you said earlier, it's like I have a pretty strong network in SaaS, uh, yeah. and and that's what they come for is to to get some guidance on how to grow faster. Okay, so what do you look for then um, in your investment? So I imagine it's quite different than you say you're not looking for unicorns. You're looking for a certain type of owner. Do you prefer like single um, single founders or, or teams or you like young people? What, what do you usually, go, I imagine it goes across the gambit, but what do you like generally, what are you looking for in your investments? Yeah, so we, I shouldn't say we, we don't want unicorns we would take a unicorn. That'd be great for the fund returns, but it's not the implied, you know, you apply to tiny seed and we're going to push you to, to go down that road. Okay. Understood. Right. Um, so we look at it. Well, we look at, I look at it. We have this 42 different factors in a Google sheet of like, do they have this kind of traction and what have they shipped and what have they proven as founders? But I kind of boil it down to three P's, which is the people involved. So it's the founder or founders. It's yeah. uh, how close they are, how much of product market fit they have. And it is um, pricing or price sensitivity, right? So if you're selling to consumers and you top out at nine bucks a month, that's going to be a hard business to grow to, to seven figures, which is kind of the, the low bar that, that we aspire to. 
in term, I mean, and those are the main factors. Like the application itself is a lot of numbers. I mean, it's questions about your business, who are your competition, what's your unique advantage, but then it's like, what's your MRR, your average revenue per user, and and that's where I tend to start my rating. Like if I'm going to rate them on a, a one to five scale, mm-hmm. I look at the numbers first. Now, then once we get into interviews, we don't care about age. Um, I, our community, and I think bootstrapping in general, tends to skew towards older folks anyways. Like I'm in my 40s. Um, I think the prototypical Y Combinator founder is like Stanford grad, 23 years old. I think the prototypical kind of microconf bootstrapper is living in maybe in a major city, but definitely did not go to an Ivy League school, probably grew up working class, and they're probably in their, you know, late 20s to late 40s. And it's mm-hmm. just, and they're doing their thing, and they have a day job, and they often have a, you know, a life partner, maybe a, maybe a child or two, like I do, and a mortgage. Yeah. And so yeah. going the YC path, moving to the Bay Area for three months just, you know, wasn't traditionally something available to them. And so we, I mean, like in this new batch of 18 companies, the, the age range is probably, you know, I won't call it out here, but I mean, it's it's certainly from the 20s into the, I believe, into the 50s mm-hmm. uh, in terms of people, right? So it's a real, I, that's the thing with bootstrapping is it's such an equalizer, right? Because you don't have to ask permission to do it, that yeah. the folks who get in, it's very, I would say it's more diverse across a lot of dimensions, you know, in terms of age, in terms of location, um, you know, potentially gender and, and race as well. So... If you're getting 500 applicants, say for what, how many spots? Did you say? Yeah, we'll find up to 20 in a batch. 20. We, we okay. found eight, 18 and it's, this time. But it's it, if you say it's on like it sounds like it can't just be on like what MRR is though because that's, that's right. Obviously, the guys that have the highest MRR are the ones that maybe you're most interested. So what? When it comes to the to the numbers and MRR, generally, are you looking like for something in the five thousand range that they're just getting going, or more than that? Because when I spoke with um, you guys earlier, they said, "Oh, you can even have as much as 500. So, why would you select someone with five hundred MRR as opposed to turning down someone with twenty thousand mm. um, that seem like um, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, MRR. It's interesting because MRR is a signal and a strong signal of like traction and of a, the founder's ability to actually charge people because you'll be shocked at how many people I talk to who are starting a business and they're two, three years into it and they have a bunch of free users and they've never charged anyone. And it's like, well, okay. you, you have to take that step, right? So so money is, uh, revenue is some type of proof, proof you know, that, you, that as a founder, you're able to execute and that the business has some legs. In our application, we discourage people to apply if they don't have at least five hundred dollars in MRR. To your point, mm-hmm. and so if you come to the application on you know the week or two we run them, um, and that really has it's done two things. One, it's actually decreased the number of applicants we get, which is a good thing because yeah. our first our first run we got nine hundred, and it was but it was there was a bunch of stuff of people I have an idea that I want to do something, yeah, and yeah. it's like that's too early for us. You know, we can't. Yeah. There's too many of those, and there's not enough data points to be able to possibly choose which of these we think are going to succeed. The general range, I would say, is about, I mean, I think the on the lower end, like 800 to 1,000 maybe in this batch. Maybe it was like 1,500, somewhere in that that range as the lowest, okay. lowest end. But that I'm not saying that we would never fund anyone lower than that. So, yeah. um, and, and it's up into the... You know, last batch we had someone who was doing a hundred grand a month. Um, this batch, and I think. Did you accept them? We did. Accepted. Yeah, you did. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, but it's but it's because we see the potential in the business, right? You can have a hundred thousand dollar a month business that is completely flat, and there's nowhere to go. And we don't 
if we can't help you, we're not going to invest. Okay. Does that make sense? It, we're not just going to Yeah, buy. totally. Yeah, to, I mean, there's a lot of sort of zombie SaaS. That's as right. As you know, you know that That's it's right. sort of flatlining. Right. Um, and so we still see the potential. And so, you know, it depends. I Even coming up with an average is hard because it's different from batch to batch. You know, sometimes the average is been early on it was 15 or 20 now i'd say the average is a little higher than that but um 15 yeah, or 15,000 a month okay. yeah 20,000 okay, a month that, that's the, okay and um when somebody's coming in with 100,000 and you're just gi giving them 100,000 they're obviously what a, what are they is it all just mentorship or what are some of the is it the guidance or or um like what's the conversation like when you're talking to someone like that's doing 100,000 cuz they're you know obviously the, it's not pretty for far the along money at all that's yeah. right that's right. Yeah. And again, I mean, 75, 80% of companies applying to Tiny Seed tell us flat out, I'm not doing this for the money. I can get money yeah. cheaper elsewhere. Like our valuations, uh, you know, are, are lower than if you went to uh, an angel group or, or Y Combinator or whatever, but we bring so much value, right? That's, yeah. that's the justification. Um, mm -hmm. We're a unique offering because if you want to bootstrap or mostly bootstrap, we're one of the only games in town. And then to your point, the money is one of four things that they get. So they get uh, the internal mentorship and guidance from myself, my co-founder, um, Anar Volset, who's also you know steeped in SaaS. Mm -hmm. Then they get the mentorship from our um, mentor network, which if you go to tinyc.com slash people, it's kind of a all-star roster of, you know, bootstrap yeah, SaaS founders. I know some of the guys. Some of the Rand guys Fishkin. have been on, the, on, the, on this podcast okay. as well, Rand and... Yep. Uh, um, Chris Gimmer, I know, is another one, right? Yep. From Chris. Snapa. Yep. Chris Savage yeah. from Wistia, and um, yeah. yeah, Josh Pigford and Patrick from Profitwell, and the Basecamp guys. You know, a lot of folks there. Yeah. So they get that network, and then, uh, or they get the mentorship from them, uh, and then they get the community of being in a batch with seventeen other ambitious or nineteen other ambitious SaaS founders. Who mm -hmm. you know, we're in a Slack group every day. We do three in-person retreats a year. And they're, they get paired up into mastermind groups where, you know, it's a small group of three or four of the companies and they meet every other week and share their problems and share the journey. And a lot mm -hmm. of folks are looking for that guidance of like, I don't know what I don't know. And also I've built a 40, 30, 40, $50,000 SaaS company. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel like I know what I'm doing. I mean, we hear mm -hmm. that a lot. Like, I feel like yeah. I've kind of lucked into it and I'm looking for folks who are more, who know it, what, what, to look out for and who have seen the patterns, right? And who have seen across so many companies. Because even before Tiny Seed, I've invested myself in, I think, 19 or 20 uh, SaaS companies, right? Angel invested. So I'm up to almost 80 now, which is a, you start to see a lot of, you know, a lot of patterns and start to, someone says, what should my first hire be? And I'm like, well, it's it's either this or that, you know, or yeah. we're about to hit 20K. What should I look out for? Oh, well, you're in this market. You should think about, you know, it's just, you start, you get a lot of data across a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, different, different points. Yeah. So this show specifically is about the zero to 30,000 journey. Can you can you kind of break down some of the challenges that that you see as, you know, such a seasoned investor and an entrepreneur, entrepreneur yourself? What are the big sort of challenges that you see in in let, let's break it down from zero to 5,000, say 5,000 to 15 and 15 up? What would you say are like some of the biggest challenges when they first get out of the gate? Yeah. That those so I'm working on a fourth book right now, and it's about it's like a SaaS playbook type thing of, of almost a sequel, a spiritual sequel to Start Small, Stay Small. Where Start Small, Stay Small looked at you know, going from zero to 
10K, zero to 20K a month and just building a great lifestyle business. This book looks mm. at more of the businesses we're talking about, where it's like, I want to bootstrap to seven or eight figures, you know? And yeah. the hardest part to try to like codify is are the early days because they're just so amorphous. There is no blueprint for those. It, you know, for the early, early days, it's like you can read all the case studies and you can read all the um, experiences of founders on Twitter, listen to the podcast, and everybody does it differently. And certain people do incredible amounts of validation, right? And they get pre-purchases and then they launch to crickets. And no one, yeah. everyone who paid them doesn't do anything. So I'm not saying validation doesn't work because I think yeah. it's a nice signal, but you'll, yeah. you're never going to get to hundred percent, you know, a hundred percent certainty that this idea is going to work. Um, so that's the biggest challenge it, to me from zero to five is you have this long slog of coming up with an idea, hopefully setting up, setting up a landing page, talking to customers about it, potential customers and getting this feedback, but you don't know if any of it's real. You can kind of get a slight sense, but are people just telling you what you want to hear? The uncertainty just is in your psyche that entire time and it's, it's haunting. So I think that the mental side of it is probably the hardest part uh, at that point. And what would you say some of the most creative ways that you've heard of like say pre-selling or validating an idea during this phase? I mean, there's, you know, we ask about this. We have a report called the State of Independent SaaS where we survey, you know, whatever, five, 600 uh, to 1,000, depending on the year, um, bootstrap, mostly bootstrap SaaS founders on this topic. And we say, how did you validate your, you know, your, your idea? And the, I think the most common answer is I didn't do any validation. And then the number two is um, I... I either got pre-buy commitments or I pre-sold it. Um, and then landing page is another one. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. A lot of folks are building it for themselves. You know, they, it's the eat your own dog food. I have a problem, so I'm going to build it for myself. That is probably 45, 50% of people are doing that alone. And um, I think to your point, I, I've always liked the dual... Um, the dual approach of having a nice landing page set up that describes the value proposition and is taking in email addresses. Uh, mm -hmm. Pre-purchases feels a little ambitious to me at that point. Really? Okay, that's yeah. interesting because I know uh, a lot of people uh, love doing it that way. And to it me, it's the best validation you can get, right? If somebody's yes. giving you pain, you know, they're, they're expressing their pain in, in terms of dollar amounts, you know? Yeah. But here's the problem. If you don't have an audience and you try to do that, the odds of you selling any are very, very slim. And if you do have an audience, the odds of your audience buying because they like you are very, very high. It's the, ah, I call it the curse yeah. of the audience. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not saying it doesn't work, but here's the way I like doing it or, and the way I kind of did it with a drip. Um, which was my last startup, the last SaaS app that I launched in yeah. 2013, was I set up a landing page and I had email capture and mm -hmm. described what Drip was and the value prop it was going to do. And people who signed up for that list, like if I was on a podcast like this, I would mention the URL and then a trickle of people would come in. Well, then I would reach out to them directly and I would mm -hmm. say, hey, so this is what I have, you know, here's a mock-up and this is what I think we're building and I think we're going to launch in the next few months. Like how, how interesting is this and is this worth 50 bucks a month to you? And so then it was a conversation. It wasn't to come to this page and click buy now. It was more of almost an enterprise sales process, right? Customer development, you might call it, but I was um, also trying to get that pre-purchase. 
so that so it's the dual approach, if that makes sense. Like I had the landing page to kind of get the leads in, and then I was also having these more customer development uh, oriented conversations, which not only got so I never pre-sold, but I got pre-commitments. I said, if I build this and I charge fifty bucks a month, will you try it out at least for three months? And I got I talked to like I talked to a bunch of people, but when I, once I hit ten commitments for that, I was like, we're all in. We're writing code. That was when the yeah. day we started writing the code. Okay. So do you have like a, a blueprint? Let's say you just let in a, your latest cohort. They're all sort of fresh. And what what's the sort of, um, like what's the, the playbook that you say, okay, this is what we're going to do to get you from five to say 15,000. What, like, do you have a mm -hmm. checklist? Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. So we do have something called the Tiny Seed Playbook, which is seven modules that we cover over the course of a couple months. And so mm -hmm. we, the first one is all about funnels. And we say, look, okay. you know what a funnel is. You know what a, mar a marketing slash sales funnel is. Yeah. And we talk about how important it is that you be priced correctly for the type of funnel you have. High, high touch versus medium touch versus low touch, right? Okay, so it's breaking down the funnel. Yep. Just totally like just... Yep. And, do you, and there's probably a certain amount of that in the beginning when you're looking at is saying these guys have a terrible funnel and they're still, you know, they're still getting people. Now That's this right. is getting, you know, this is getting me excited. That's right. So yeah. from five to 15, we're saying you have something here. You have, I call yeah. it going from building a, you go from building a product to building a business to building a company. Those are kind of the three stages I see. And a product is when you're just, hey, you're hacking on code and trying to get people to pay you. Obviously, yeah. Uh, a business is when now you have profit and loss and maybe you don't want to, you know, money's coming in, money's going out. Maybe you're going to hire some people. And then a company is like, okay, usually that, I don't know, that's 20, 30 grand and up. That's when you start scaling the company out, right? It's like, I need to hire managers. I need to hire operations, blah, blah, blah. So five to 15 K is actually a pretty interesting time because you still, you don't have product market fit yet. You might have a little bit of it, right? I view it as a spectrum, right? If it's zero to 100, maybe you're at yeah. 30. And you're trying to yeah, you're yeah. trying to suss out like who do I have product market fit with if anyone, um, and and the playbook is let's look at your I start with funnels my co-founder Anar starts with sales because he's more of a sales guy but I look at the funnel and when we look at all the numbers and I have these rules of thumb right if you ask for credit card up front visitor to trial should be X Y Z trial to page should be this and then your churn should be whatever right okay, so and so like kpis are just like where are you at there's yes. like a little score sheet or something exactly. like that like where are you KPI? bleeding yeah, yep. yeah. where's your okay. funnel falling over and some people's funnels at that point are pretty good and then it's like okay then you need more people in the funnel so then then we move to that of like all right what's working for you today and there's only what there's four or five of the most common b2b SaaS marketing approaches right it's pay-per-click ads it's seo content integrations and integrations and partnerships. Uh -huh. um, I'm trying to think of the fifth one. Anyways, off the top of my head, but the, you know, it's pretty common that those are going to be one of the, the oh, and uh, outbound, like outbound uh, LinkedIn outreach and cold email. Those yeah, are the yeah. five okay. that are pretty much everyone should try depending on your space. So then we say, okay, if your funnel is pretty healthy, or even if it's 70% healthy, work on the funnel as you start ramping up these, these efforts. Mm -hmm. And either okay. you're either going to do them yourselves or now that you have some money, you're going to hire someone to do them. You know, you can hire people to do a cold outbound. You can hire folks to help with uh, pay-per-click and SEO. And do you have any preference in those in those channels? Is, are, would you say you're a specialist, say, like in content marketing or SE, in SEO? Or, I mean, do you look for that in, in the product? Or is it just sort of those are the, those are the five and you have specialists, you specialize in all of them? 
I have, in my career, I have done every one of those things I just named except for cold email. Um, okay. Although I did, I did hire out cold email to an agency when we were when we were doing drip. So I guess you would say I've done all of them. Okay. These days, I am not so tactical that I can come in and say, "Ooh, change this H1 and let's go into Hrefs and you know change the the title of this and do domain authority and this and that because it changes too often." So what we have instead, of course, is our mentors, but now we have alums, the alumni, the tiny seed batch one, two, and three as batch four mm-hmm. comes in. I can name you know six people who are probably in the top five percent of of SEOs. I would say in the world based on the results they're getting on their startup, right? So yeah, like Rand, could, like Rand for example. Rand is amazing. Yeah. Um, look at and then there's but there's several you've never heard of, right? So like there's an app called Signwell. It used to be called DocSketch, and it, it was a batch yeah. two company. And Ruben is the founder, and hundreds Ruben of thousands. Ruben Gomez, hundreds yeah, yeah. of thousands of uniques a month to that site yeah, based on yeah. SEO, you know. And then we have. Um, uh, oh, it's a, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is so embarrassing. Oh, Scraping <laughs> Bee. It's Scraping Bee, and they are a French company. They're very public about their approaches and their content marketing, and I believe they even share revenue numbers maybe, but um, yeah. they their SEO and content marketing is is off the charts, right? So then I can yeah. pull them in and be like, hey, can you advise this person? And if they need longer-term help, of course, there's folks right. they can hire. But So no, I, your question was, do I have a preference? And the answer is, Usually, if the founder's excited about one of those, it's going to go well. So I, we yeah. let be a little founder guided, but with guidance of like you're in an enterprise space, you're probably going to you know want to try out cold outreach and maybe integrations if you can. I mean, yeah. content marketing is a longer term play, right? So you oft, often want to do two. You want to do the outreach because that's instant. And then yeah. you want to, if you're going to start SEO and content, that's a long term engine, right? So you, right. you often do that. Would you say my general impression is that content marketing is good for the SaaS that are sort of on the lower price range for, you know, let's say you're 15 to sort of 50 uh, and and so paid traffic's not going to work for it. Um, So they get started with that. And then paid traffic to me seems like it has the most potential to scale. But really, you need to say like a like a at least a fifteen hundred LTV or um, would you say that's generally correct? And do you use those sorts of guidelines when when you choose channels? Yes, uh, I would say that's generally correct. Pay per click ads, yeah, you're right, thousand to two thousand and up. Um, cold outbound with a sales process is usually five grand and up LTV. Usually five grand annual contract value. To be honest, um, SEO can SEO and content can work at really any price point, but it's, I would say it's more effective for direct conversions right away or immediate conversions with the lower price points, like you're saying, but we have seen some higher price products. It's amazing to have inbound lead gen when your annual contract values are 25 or 50,000 a year. That's an incredible machine. So it's almost like SEO and content in any space is is good if you can do it. There are certain spaces that are so small or so not online that really SEO and content's not worth it. Um, mm-hmm. But if, if we've we do see higher price points and lower price points, I guess both succeeding with with SEO and content. Yeah, I know you're big into um, into pricing. Uh, when you're looking at your investments, is that when you look at do you sort of immediately think like, okay, I definitely see the potential to um, raise pricing on this. 
And do you Absolutely. have any preference? Do you have any preferences for for price packaging when you're looking at your own investments or what you see in successful SaaS? Do you always go for the ones that are sort of? I, I hate using that word always, but I mean, are you, yeah. you sort of going towards the ones that have two two hundred fifty dollar a month packages, or or are you just as happy with the seventy five? So, pricing is the biggest lever in SaaS, right? It's it's. There's no other way to go in and change a number on a on a web page and a number in an API call to Stripe, and to literally have the possibility of doubling your growth rate overnight. Everything else requires more leads or more features or other things. So, pre- the reason I talk so much about it is because it's this enormous lever, and I've seen, and because most people undercharge. That's the bottom line, right? Is uh, we we do uh, you know calls at the beginning of our tiny seed batches, and we do the tiny seed playbook I was talking about earlier, right? We start with funnels, then we go to pricing, we do hiring, we do M and A, um, and lead gen and sales and and all that stuff. Everything kind of the top seven things you would think about. And in the pricing module, I say, show of hands, let's let's go grid view and zoom. Show of hands, who thinks that their pricing is either too low or off in some way, like your value metric is off. And usually it's between 50 and 75% of the founders shake, raise their hands. Uh-huh. And that's because pricing is really hard, you know? And so we, I think if I looked back before this batch, so it was when we were at about 40 companies, and I think it was like 20 like 70% of the companies we had funded, and this was not intentional, but it was like 70% of them were were more um, higher price point. We're like that 250, 250 starting, 500 starting, somewhere in there, and up. And the other 30% were like, you know, there's a 14 to like Castos, right? As podcast hosting. Yeah. And that's, yeah. you know, for, for, it used to be 14. I think it's 19. And then Squadcast. Snap is the same way. Yeah. Snap is the same way. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Squadcast is nine bucks or something. So those, so we have, we have funded them and those businesses are also doing really well, but they have, you have to be in this really wide market with yeah. a lot of people looking for it and a, a big wide funnel that you can get to relatively inexpensively. So mm-hmm. I, yeah. Would you say generally, if if someone who was uh, one of our listeners is like just getting into a SaaS, would you say, would you guide them to looking towards that sort of two fifty, um, five hundred a month type of uh, of product? Is that what they should be looking for? See, it depends. It depends on their goals, right? So I built an amazing lifestyle business called Hittail, uh, up to thirty grand a month, and then mm-hmm. and then it, it plateaued, and I couldn't get it past there because of uh, the price point was low. It was like. I think it was 10, 20, 40, 80 were the price points, but it might've been 20, 40, I forget. It was 30 grand a month. I had no employees. It was like, it was absolutely life-changing to me. So I didn't need 250 enough. So if that's your goal, even in the short term, you can do that. Like Snappa is similar, right? They, they have a lot of churn, but they're low price point and they've built a low, you know, it's a low seven figure era business. That's great for yeah. the, for stair-stepping your way up. And mm-hmm. I then took the learnings and the money that was coming in from that and then started Drip, which was, you know, 50, 99, 150 and up. So I've actually never built a SaaS company with a price point of, of with a starting price point of 250 or 500, mm-hmm. like we're talking about. But Drip was is in a space where the expansion revenue is such that even if you get people on the low end, it's still super beneficial because they grow, right? They they get mm-hmm. more subscribers and then they pay you more money. So I wouldn't say I would. I, I'll say it's easier to grow a business faster that has a higher price point. You will tend to have lower churn. Uh, 
you will tend, you know, you only you need to land half the customers or a fifth of the customers to grow at the, uh, you know, at a faster rate than if you have, you know, a thirty dollar price point. I think so many of us see kind of the tools that we use of like, oh, Notion is whatever it is, ten bucks, and Slack is seven dollars a month, and Google G Suite, you know, and Dropbox, and these are all cheap. So I'm going to build a tool because that's what I should do is build it cheap. And I think you should. Try to avoid that tendency for sure. I think look at the value that your tool's providing the, and and then earn it, get there over time. Usually when you launch into a space, there are a couple competitors. I would tend to underprice them by just a bit to kind of get an edge. And then as my tool gets, because your tool sucks in the early days. It always yeah. does, no matter how much time yeah. you spend. And then over time, ratchet it up. And that's, yeah. uh, you know, as you build a brand and as you build a, the hopefully the best tool in the space, then yeah, you raise that price over time. And sometimes yeah. it's strategic to keep a low price point. With Drip, we did that. We actually went to a dollar a month plan, then we went to a free plan. And you would say, well, that's crazy. That's the opposite of your advice. But no, we were capturing the leads way earlier. And the expansion revenue in ESPs is incredible. So it, the answer is it depends. But in general, I would like higher price points uh, are, are easier businesses to grow. Um, what about um, guidelines for um, raising prices? Do you feel like there's ever a time? I mean, I know this. We could go on a, to mm -hmm. do a show no, a on one. this, but I just did a but, talk on this, so I have so many thoughts. I, just, yeah. I could break up so, my slides if we want. No, I, I want to give you an example of where I think it's been done wrong, and I think mm -hmm. Intercom, in in my opinion, has raised their prices too much. And if you go into some of these Facebook groups, there are so much noise about how much people hate Intercom right now. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on like raising your prices where you're actually like alienating your customers? And, and from their perspective, they're, they're probably thinking, well, those aren't my customers. But in my right. opinion, that's not a great attitude because, you know, it, it's just, you know, there, there's a lot of negativity going on and it's a great product. Yeah, it leaves a lot of, raising your prices like that leaves a lot of room for someone else to swoop in under you. And that's something that a that an amazing company that just sold for $12 billion, MailChimp, they never did that, right? They had a high end, if you go to their pricing page, they have really expensive plans, but they've always had kept that free plan. And they've always kept, the, I think the first, you know, after, you, after free, it's like 15 or 20 a month. They've always kept that, even though... Uh, you know, it's common, maybe MBA knowledge or whatever would be common wisdom would be keep raising your pricing. So it is absolutely possible to raise it and alienate people. Um, I would say tools maybe like Salesforce have done it, Intercom have done it. A lot of the big players have done it. What they tend to do, like someone who did, did it pretty smart, um, intelligently is, um, it's Atlassian does this. Like I think Jira is quite expensive, but they have a plan that's like, you know, I don't know how much Jira costs. Let's say it's $100 per seat per month. It's probably some 50 to $100, I'm guessing. Maybe I'm wildly over. But then they have a plan. It's like 10 users for 10 bucks a month. That's their bottom end plan because they want to suck all the air out of the lower end of the market. And if you're starting out, of course, I can afford that. By the time you get to 10 engineer, you know, people, eh, we're big enough. We can afford the 1000 a month or whatever it's going to cost, right? That's their logic there. Um, this is what keeping that high, it, it's a tough balance, but keeping that high price point is, I think something that, um, will come, will over time, especially as the product matures and ages, right? Cause let's not take intercom in particular, but like any software product just gets long in the tooth. It happens. And 
as you do that, you're going to have people maybe looking to switch a little bit, right? Looking around. And if your price point is so much higher than everyone else's, that's when I think you're going to start to see, um, you know, your brand degrade and nothing pleases me more. Like if I were to start a startup to another SaaS app, I would look for a space, a big space that's proven like intercom space. And I would look for a hated competitor and I would build something that basically served the same needs and you know, you can still build a great business at half their price Swoop or a third there. of their price. Yeah. So, so in that example, we would that you was it's what would what should Intercom do? It sounds to me like you're saying they should have this ten dollar a month plan or whatever it is that they can just kind of prevent that from happening. Um, and or how could they fix what 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 I feel like they're doing wrong? Yeah, I mean, see, I don't. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not inside Intercom, and I don't have their numbers. So I'm. You know, they're smart guys. I know Dad's trainer. He's spoken at uh, yeah. MicroConf a few times. Um, I do think they're alienating the lower end of the market, but they're they're worth so much money at this point, and they have so much revenue that I that may not matter to them because those yeah. are lower. Those are going to be higher churn customers by mm-hmm. nature, right? Yeah. So maybe seeding. Maybe it is a strategic decision that they're okay to seed that to you know a, a company like user list right that's a tiny seed company and they have built a chunk of intercom stack and they're a lot a lot less expensive so it may be an intentional thing if i were internally internal there and i didn't want to lose that space then yeah i would look at having and the the starter plan i think hubspot has one too right where it's like or or the first year is free or the first two years you know you get them yeah, as long as get you're a startup in. who yeah. hasn't raised get more than in. 10 million yeah there's like a hubspot starter plan that's the same reason as they didn't want to lose everybody to, to their competitors, you know, on the, their lower end competitors. Mm-hmm. But you a, would go into that space. You would go. Would you go into into like that sort of chat, um, um, soft, uh, software, whatever software support type. type. Yeah, it's would chat you support. Go, yeah, chat support. Would you go? Would you go into that space because intercoms uh, sort of? I might because I mean, it's very yeah. it's a very competitive uh, it is and crowded space so i wouldn't go into it if i was a first-time founder so i have a thing yeah. called the stair step approach to bootstrapping which is don't don't play in the major leagues until yeah, yeah. you've played t-ball and you played high school ball and you played okay, you know college single a double yeah. a right it's to get those skills and that's that's what i did hey i have a wordpress plugin right to start with it's not SaaS, but if you can build it to a couple grand a month. You learn a ton about yeah. all the things it takes. And then you, maybe you have an ebook on the side, or maybe then you build a, a micro, you know, like a, a really small SaaS company, right? That's like Hittail, mm-hmm. right? That was a lifestyle business. Like I learned a ton from there and then I leveraged that up. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't mind going into a big crowded space today. But if you're a first time founder, I would encourage you um, to maybe cut your teeth on some more stair steppy uh, step okay. one, step two businesses. I want to make sure that we touch on the um, the launch of the uh, Tiny Seed Europe because I'm sure we have some Europeans listening. I'm from Switzerland myself. I'm not oh, from cool. there, but that's where I'm, the show is based. Can you can you tell me um, what's going on with that and and uh, how you think it'll be different? Obviously, aside from being in Europe um, from uh, Tiny Seed USA. Yeah, yeah. So we just announced that a few weeks back at our European, the MicroConf uh, Europe growth event. And in essence, we are raising a dedicated fund in Europe and are going to be allowing the biggest difference is that we are going to invest in companies that are domiciled in Europe. So like, you know, we haven't, we haven't decided it. We can't do everywhere. We can't, we can't do all, all the European countries, but we will probably pick a couple. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, 
high on the list would be like the UK. We have a lot of reach in there, right? So we get a lot of UK limited companies that apply to Tiny Seed US. And it's like, well, we can't, we can't fund you <laughs> as a UK limited company. Yeah. So you essentially have to convert to a, uh, you know, a C corp or an LLC. And that's complicated for, for folks mm-hmm. living there. So that was a big piece of it is how can we enable this to happen and not um, get so caught up in, in, you know, the, the legal side of it is, is a nightmare that, that we shouldn't go into here. So that'll be the big um, push. And it'll also be nice. We're hiring a program manager right now out in the European time zones. And I should say it's, it's uh, EMEA, right? It's Middle East, Africa, and Europe. Right. It's, it's all the European there's, time zones. There's tons of potential that I see in Eastern Europe as well, like Poland. Uh, yep. It's got a great startup scene. In, um, Absolutely. Yeah, and there's nothing a, like this. There, for that. The, I mean, venture itself, venture there is behind, you know, what, what's happening in San Francisco and New York and the other main U.S. hubs. But also, there is really nothing like Tiny Seed out there. And I think a lot more, a lot more folks do want to bootstrap, you know, in Europe, and they don't want to go. The venture track just doesn't appeal to them. So we've had a lot of, definitely a lot of interest from European uh, and Middle East and African countries, um, companies who have applied to the U.S. one, and some of them have converted, and then others, it just became pretty obvious. So we're raising a dedicated fund, right, to your point. We had the U.S. funds now, we have two of them, and they total about 31 million-ish, 31, 32. Mm-hmm. And so I think we'll wind up raising, um, you know, for a first fund, five to 10 million for the European one, and, and that's going very well, actually. It's going faster than we thought. So a lot of traction there, and uh, excited to run the first batch here. Probably put applications up in January, actually. Okay, that's great. And, Just a couple and months out. What, what do you? What are, what are the some of the big uh, differences between um, the U.S. Uh, doing this in the U.S. and in the European startup scene? What What are some of the big things that you find in Europe that are um, different from the U.S.? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there's a lot more. So especially with with like bootstrapped and mostly bootstrapped SaaS, there's a lot more similar than there is different, right? That mm-hmm. it's it's folks who who want freedom to, to work on their interesting projects and to build the thing that they own, you know, and the, and the purpose of working on interesting problems and relationships are really important as well, right? Of like, I, I have a wife or a husband and a child and I, that is more important to me than my startup. And I want to have, how can I balance those two things and still be a successful entrepreneur, right? That's the, those are the commonalities. I think in Europe, there's an interesting thing, country to country, the, some of the laws are pretty almost anti-entrepreneurial to where I think to hire, there are certain countries where like to hire an employee, you need 12 months of their salary in the bank, or you at least need, it's a 12 month severance package. You have to pay out for them for a year. And when I think of that as a founder, it's like, that is really tough. So as a, as a result, culturally entrepreneurship in some countries and we've seen in Europe are, it's more discouraged, you know, it's not as easy to do. And culturally, like families are even more against it than uh, maybe in the U S when you say, I'm going to start a startup. My family kind of looked at me crazy uh, because no one in my family had been an entrepreneur, but at least they let me do it, you know, versus like they, no one really tried to talk me out of it. Um, Uh Uh-huh. So I think that there's a bit of that, but there is, you know, you've been to MicroConf Europe. It's like, there's still a lot of really good SaaS yeah. founders in, in Europe. And, oh, absolutely. Yeah. In that, in that situation, would you encourage them to say, well, why you got to do it outside of that country? Um, you know, say if they're from Poland, 
um, do it in the UK or you know whatever uh, Malta or something like that where there's not those regulations. Is a that lot what of folks, you would recommend? I mean, a lot of folks do that. To be honest, they move. That's you know, there's the the expat community the uh, in Thailand and Vietnam who is a lot of U.S. folks and European folks who move there because a it's cheap to live and b you can set up a Hong Kong you know limited yeah. corp or whatever it is. Excuse me, and. To your point, the laws are, you know, are so different. Um, but also we do see people like someone moving from Italy to, whatever, you know, to Portugal because I'm, I'm just using examples. But it's like, yeah, yeah. moving to another More country. Friendly. Yeah. But yeah, why can you do it remotely from Italy and set up in Port, you know, yeah, that Portugal? I, I don't know. I don't know if the Italian, you know, it's like in the U.S., no matter where you live in the world, like they still charge you tax. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know how that, you know, I don't know how yeah, it works yeah. yet. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, the great stuff. Rob, I want to make sure you get off to your next appointment. So I thank you so much for your time. Um, any, any way, anything you want to send people to or how can people reach out to you um, that, that are interested from anything you've spoken to about on the show? Yeah, for sure. Well, obviously, tinyseed.com if folks want to, you can get on the email list. We don't email that much. But if you're, whether you are a, a, an accredited investor and interested in investing in early stage B2B SaaS, um, it's, a good, it's a great way to diversify across that because we are going to be investing in hundreds uh, of companies. Uh, or a founder who thinks they might want to, you know, if you want to bring community. Is the best or microconf or both either? Well, it, so it, it depends, right? Microconf.com is if you want um, more community and, mm -hmm. and maybe the funding isn't that interesting, you know? Yeah. Tiny Seed's good. And then, of course, Startups for the Rest of Us. That's the podcast. If you listen to this podcast, you probably listen to others. So check yeah. it out. You'll hear me talking for 30 minutes every week on this topic. All right. Great. Thanks so much, Rob. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Big Break Software Podcast with your host, Jordy Wardman. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out on the web. Keep listening and your software Big Break could be right around the corner. <laughs> <laughs>